People of God, let us open our Bibles to that very familiar, rich, and wonderful passage that every time we look at it, we see more, John chapter 1, and we're going to focus on John 1, 1, and also on verse 14. So we go from Genesis 49:10 last night to John 1 this morning. I'm going to read this passage, these verses, from the authorized version. You will have no problem following along, but in detail, I think it actually is the best translation available of these verses. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father and our God, How thankful we are for the incarnation of our Lord, and how thankful we are that we may now turn to the Word of God and understand from these passages, insofar as the Holy Spirit will enable, something of the depth and reality of what it it means that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And since the Word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that the work of the Holy Spirit will apply this word to our hearts, giving to every believer a sense of amazement that will help us to mature and grow in grace, and to the lost that they will see for the first time who this Jesus is, and will fall before him and believe on him with saving faith. But we pray especially, Father, that even though we will be dealing with thoughts and concepts that are, are deeper than any mature Christian can even begin to really penetrate, we pray nonetheless that the children of our congregation will see more than they ever have before of the greatness of the Christ whom we worship, and that every one of them would know and trust in Jesus Christ. And these things we ask in the name of our exalted Savior, the one who was born, the one who died, the one who rose again, ascended, and who intercedes for us and who is coming again, Jesus, the only Redeemer of sinners. Amen and amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. John 1.1. The Word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now look at verse 18 also. No man hath seen God at any time the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter on one occasion spoke of how he had been on family visitation in his parish of Kidderminster. And sitting down with one family, he discovered 
that they did not know that Jesus is God. And what surprised this Puritan pastor was these people that were in his congregation had sat under his preaching for 10 years. Now, you can believe that this pastor had not in any way hidden the fact that Jesus is God. He preached the deity of Jesus Christ. But somehow, those sitting under his preaching had not yet understood this very fundamental, absolutely indispensable truth. And sometimes I wonder how many basic truths of the faith I am privileged to preach, and maybe someone, even long-term under the ministry of the Word here, has missed something, something of great importance. Well, don't miss this. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity, and only God become man can save us from our sins. Now, John is answering in this passage the most basic question, who is Jesus? And he knows that as he moves along in his gospel, that answering this from the start is essential to understanding who our Savior is and why he is qualified to be the Redeemer of sinners. And so we come to these familiar words of John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first thing we see, according to this passage, is that Jesus is the eternal God. Not in the beginning the Word came to be, but using language of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, he uses the language of Genesis in this chapter and various places throughout John's gospel when he speaks of life and light and darkness and he talks about new creation. John uses creation language. But he is pointing back to Genesis 1 and he is saying to us, when God created, the word was. This means eternally existent. There was never a time that the Word was not, and this can only be said of God. And connecting this with what follows when God created, all created things were created through Him, and all created things depend upon Him. So we also read in Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So what is the beginning of God? Well, there was none. God is infinite and eternal, and the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, infinite and eternal, the one God in three persons. Now, children, I had one of my first real theology lessons when I was a, a really small boy, I don't know, four or five years old, and I had been turning over in my head, where did God come from? And I had thought, well, I came from somewhere. I had this kind of, of idea of cause and effect. I wouldn't have used that language as a four-year-old, but I, I could tell there was something about cause and effect. And so when I was visiting my grandfather in the Veterans Administration Hospital in Dublin, Georgia, with my family, I, I pulled the coattails of the chaplain there, and I asked him, where did God come from, chaplain? And I don't remember getting a very good answer. 
But as time went on and I read the Bible and I understood more and more, I came to understand God always was. He had no beginning. He will have no ending. And the same is true, of course, of his son, Jesus, because Jesus is God, the second person of the Godhead. Now he is called then, in the beginning was the word, the beginning, the pre-existent one, but he is called the word. In the beginning was the word. God has something to say. God is a communicating God. The word is not an abstract idea. The word here is a person. It is Jesus, the son of the father who is eternal. And there never was a time when he was not. And so it speaks of eternality. He was with God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. That's eternality. It could be translated also face-to-face with God, so that you understand that even though there is one essence, there is a distinction of persons. There is the Father, and there is the Son. And when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that is saying He is of the same essence with the Father. And this is the data out of which the church doctrine of the Trinity is derived, because it's right there in Scripture all through the Bible, but very plainly in this passage, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. Now, calling the Son the Word speaks of the eternal relationship that the Father and the Son have one with another, and the Son is the Father's speech. And the reason that man created in God's image can communicate with each other is because there was eternal communication within the Trinity. One being, three persons, eternally loving and communicating one with another. And this is anchored in the reality of God as communicator. There are not three gods. We're not tritheists. There is one God in three persons. And so we come next to the bold-faced statement, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the order of the words in the Greek New Testament actually stresses this because the order is, and God was the Word. The order of the words there is very important. And you hear the stress in the position of the predicate noun in this passage. Now, this passage that we're reading is the summit of the Alp of a verse. You just can't get higher than you can in this verse. Because John is not saying that there is something that's sort of divine about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Word. He is not saying that he's just the, the fairest flower of humanity, a spark of divinity within him. Let nothing of the force of this text be removed from our understanding of it. Jesus is God, not a God, not one among many. Jesus is the true and the living God. And notice how this is underscored as we move on, as we read in the second verse, the third, the fourth. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was, life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the creator God. He is the possessor of divine attributes 
that we find in those verses. So when you go back to a passage such as Isaiah chapter 40, and you read, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. This is Jesus, the eternal word, the creator of all things visible and invisible. As again, the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, wrote in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So from all of this, you can clearly see that we would be hopeless if the word came to be, if he had a beginning. This fact that Jesus is distinct from the Father, but one in being with the Father, that Jesus is God, provides the key of understanding the relationship between the Father and the Son that you continue to see all the way through in this Gospel of John, so often referenced. And there are many implications that we could draw immediately from this, but let me give you two. The first implication is simply that we must begin with Jesus Christ in order to explain reality. He is God. We hear Genesis in the background. I was having a brief discussion with a young lady, not a member of this congregation, uh, just recently, and she was very mixed up about many things. And I directed her back to Genesis, go back to the beginning see what God says about creation and who man is and how we are to understand the relationship between man and woman. So without Jesus Christ, who is the creator and also the creator who became our redeemer, then we have no explanation of reality. But then the second implication that I want to give, as we look at this great high Christology in this passage, the person of Jesus in this passage, It's simply a quote that I bring almost every year at Christmas because it's so wonderful from Milne, who says, if Jesus shares the nature of God, we are called to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption because he is worthy. Now, that's the first thing we see in the text. Jesus is the eternal God. But now let's go to verse 14. And here in verse 14, we learn that Jesus, the eternal God, became man. This is truly amazing. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the Word, who is God Himself, became flesh and dwelt among us, And that is the wonder of Christmas. He has made clear that the Word is God. Now the Word became man and became, contrast with was, who he has always been. This one, the eternal God, became something that he had not been. He is not saying changed into. He didn't cease being God. When Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem and grew as a man and went to the cross and rose from the dead, and there was no vacancy in the Trinity. 
He was who he had always been, but he became who he was not. He assumed human nature. And so as Calvin says, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us, since it was not in our power to ascend to him. Why does John use the term flesh in verse 14? And the word became flesh. You see, he could have said, and the word became man. And that's true. That's included in that. He could have said he assumed human nature. That's true. He could have said any number of things to indicate that he took on true humanity, true manhood, but he chooses to use the word flesh. Why? Most likely it's because there was some sort of docetism already at work, a heresy that said that Christ did not come in a real body, but came in a phantom body, that was a denial of the true and and real incarnation of our Lord. Paul seems to do the same thing. When I was a boy reading Colossians over and over again, because it meant so much to me, and I was learning things from the book about who Jesus is, I began to understand that that he was stressing certain things. The plenitude and perfections of the deity dwelling in him bodily, Paul said, and of the blood of his cross. Why stress the word blood? Of course there's blood if he goes to the cross, and he speaks of the reconciliation through the body of his flesh, Well, of course, if there's a body, there's flesh. Why is Paul stressing this? Well, again, I came to understand that the New Testament stresses Christ's deity, but also will have nothing to do with minimizing his humanity. Christ did not come in a phantom body. He said to the Father, quoted in Hebrews 10 verse 5, the Son says to the Father, a body thou hast prepared for me. So matter matters. We're not Platonists. We believe that he came in the flesh. Now dwell upon what that means. Think upon it. God the Son took our flesh and took our common nature, yet without sin. And never forget and always appreciate the contrasts that again I mention every Christmas, that the infinite became finite, that the eternal subject to time that the unchangeable became changeable, the independent dependent, and the divine became human. God became man. Why did the word become flesh? Because he came to accomplish, again as Calvin says, no uncommon thing. The Lord became incarnate in order to redeem sinners like us from our sins, to be bruised for our iniquities, that our transgressions might be placed upon him when he died on the cross in the place of us, so that the wrath of God would be poured out upon him in our place. Again, as Calvin so beautifully puts it, this is the wondrous exchange which out of his boundless goodness he has made with us, having become son of man with us, he has made us with himself sons of God. By his own descent to earth, he has prepared our ascent to heaven. Having received our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. Having taken our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred his wealth to us. Having taken upon himself the burden of impurity with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his righteousness. That's why he came. 
in the flesh. And it says here, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it's pitched his tent among us in the Greek. He pitched his tent among us. And the reason that John is using that expression is because he wants us to think of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The tent that was pitched among the people of God. The tabernacle was the place of God's special presence. It was the place of God's covenant love where it was manifested. The place where God speaks. It was the place of atonement. It was the place of the shed blood. It was the place of propitiation. And now he, Jesus, in his incarnation is the new location of all that that meant. The new location of the worship of God is in and through Jesus And the gospel is good news because God entered into our shared humanity and has gone down into our darkness for us and in our place. And if Christ did not become human, then he did not save Adam's fallen race. But he did. And as one of the old divines put it, he took damnation lovingly. Your Savior became flesh and took damnation for me. Believer for you, lovingly. And you cannot place anything between yourself and the holy God. You can't place your works there and say, that will be my mediator. Your philosophy there, your religion there. You can put nothing between you and God, thinking that's going to make things all right. Only the blood and merit of Jesus Christ can be placed between you and the holy God. Only the righteousness of Christ received by faith can can enable you to appear before the holy God safe and sound and secure. But also in verse 14, he says, we beheld his glory and Behind this is Exodus 40, the glory of God that filled the temple when it was set up. And Jesus is the true Shekinah glory of God among men. And all that was typical and incomplete finds its fulfillment in Christ. And he says he was full of grace and truth. Grace is used three times. This word is used three times in the prologue to John. It is used nowhere else in John's gospel. Though John's gospel is all about grace. Because all grace is found in him. The word truth, however, is found 25 times in John's gospel, meaning the opposite of what is false, but also trustworthy and other nuanced meanings. And here probably it means utter reliability as well as true, not false. Jesus is the one who said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. We read in Exodus chapter 34, when God showed himself, not his essence, but showed himself to Moses, having hidden him in the cleft of the rock. The name of the Lord being proclaimed, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. These attributes are the attributes that belong to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. If you have come to see your heart and you realize your heart is graceless and that it is all mixed up and there is not truth, then here's the answer for the needs of your heart. 
Jesus is the one in whom is all grace and truth. But now let's add a thought. Thirdly, Jesus also is the revealer of the Father. For we come down to verse 18, and there we read these magnificent words. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. In showing who Jesus is, John also shows what God is like. Here is the glory of God revealed. No man, not even Moses, saw God. I'm talking about in his essential glory. And again, the backdrop of that being in Exodus chapter 33, when God is, is communicating with Moses, and Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand and I will pass by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face cannot be seen. But now the disciples of Jesus say, we've seen the glory of God. We've seen the glory of God. We have seen the only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father, shows this intimate union of the Father and of the Son and their essential being. Only He could reveal the Father in the incarnation, and we disciples have seen the glory of the Father. How? By seeing Jesus in performing signs, in washing the saints' feet, in raising the dead, and being lifted up on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, in short, in loving and serving his Father, and in loving and saving us, we actually see the glory of the Father. And the word here is exegetes. The word is to lead out or to explain. Jesus exegetes the Father, explains the Father, shows the Father, displays the Father, and reveals Him as only the Word become flesh could. Because Christianity is revealed, and Jesus reveals the Father's plan, and He reveals the Father's purpose, and He reveals the Father's hatred of sin, and the Father's love, and the Father's heart, and the Father's plan of redemption, and all that we can know of the Father is found in Jesus. So is it possible, someone here, you're wondering deep within your heart, can I know God? Is it possible for God to show me His heart? Is it possible for me to see the Father's love? He sent His own Son into the world, and the Son of His love, the one with whom He was in ineffable fellowship in eternity, God the Son, came down, and now, would you see the Father? Would you see His heart? You see it in Jesus. Believer, do you still tend to think God is wrathful and angry with me? To see the Father's heart, you look to Jesus. And in this, I'm certainly agreed with A. Michael Ramsey, who made the statement, God is Christ-like 
And in him is no unchristlikeness at all. What is God like? That is what God is like. He's like Jesus, of whom you read in John's Gospel and Matthew and Mark and Luke and throughout the Bible. Do you know the Father? Do you know the Father? You know Him only through the Son. Communion with God was lost by Adam for all of his posterity. It is renewed by Jesus who became flesh and dwelt among us so that you can actually know God and have communion with God because of Jesus coming down and becoming that baby in Bethlehem on that first Christmas morning. I cannot stress too much how important a sense of wonder is to Christian living. It keeps us from sin. It makes us dream of the expansion of the kingdom of God. It keeps your soul passionate. It helps you to remember that God is infinite and that you are finite, that God is holy, and that you are a sinner in need of grace. To be filled with wonder suffuses your life with a sense of awe. How can we fail to be, to be overflowing with a sense of wonder when we really consider that God came down for hell-deserving sinners and became man to redeem us from our sins. And that's my goal on this Christmas morning, that no matter what your troubles are, no matter your hardships, no matter how difficult things may be, no matter your joys or your sorrows, that everything will be taken up with a sense of the wonder of the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. That's my goal. And children, here's my goal as it applies to you. This goal of this sense of wonder. There was a little boy whose name was Wilhelmus Abrockel. Now, he became a great minister of the Word, and theologian, and he wrote a lot. But when he was a little boy, his father was a pastor. You say, Wilhelmus is an odd name. Well, he was Dutch, and this was a common name when he was growing up. But his father preached a sermon on Christmas, and his biographer says this, a Christmas sermon by his father, Theodorus Abrockel, made a deep impression upon the young Wilhelmus. The commemoration of the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners had so affected him that he asked more than once, Father, when will it be Christmas again? Now, I'm sure he was given gifts by his father and mother, pious mother. But he didn't say, when will it be Christmas again so that I can get more gifts, though that would be okay. He didn't say, when will it be Christmas again so that we can have a great dinner such as we had. He didn't say, when can we have Christmas again so I can see aunts and uncles and cousins? No, he heard a sermon about who Jesus is and how he was the Savior of sinners, and it so moved his little heart that he said over and over to his father, Father, when will it be Christmas again? And his biographer says that from his earliest years, he remembers having had a great love for his Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what I pray for you, children, that you also, not just your parents, 
but that you will have a sense of awe in your heart even as you open gifts and have a great meal and that maybe you too will say to your mom or dad when will it be Christmas again because I want to hear the message about Jesus becoming a baby to save me from my sins I want to hear it again I really love hearing it and I really do trust him do you trust him children He's the only Savior of sinners. Now listen to the words of Augustine. And now, with what words shall we praise the love of God? What thanks shall we give? He so loved us that for our sakes, He, older by eternity than the world itself, was younger in age than many of His servants in the world. He who made man was made man. He was given existence by a mother whom he brought into existence. He was carried in hands which he formed. He was nursed at breasts which he filled. He cried like a babe in the manger in speechless infancy. This word, without which human eloquence is speechless. Amen. Amen.